Good morning, church. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Hear you talk like that, man. Thanks for letting me be in your church with you today. Um, I come from a college church in Marion, Indiana. We have about the same constituents that you have here, and so I'm familiar at least with the environment, but I'm not familiar with y'all. I will go on the road from time to time at uh, universities or camps or ministerials, Uh, but my favorite place, I think, is the local church because it's the body of Christ. And um, the older I get, I'm in my 30s now, Uh, um, the more I'm impressed with the power of the body of Christ to actually bring people to salvation. Uh, And so I just encourage all of you uh, to stay in the body of Christ and let the body of Christ do its work on you. And uh, you will like what you become as a result of a good, healthy, vibrant church. I've listened to Steve's last five sermons, so I have a pretty good idea what he said. I'm more familiar with his stuff than mine. So if I start sounding more like him, that's why I'm channeling, actually. Uh, But I hope I can add a little bit of value uh, uh, just a little bit. I certainly can't improve it. What you've heard, I think, is, is just stellar. It's really good stuff. But if I can, I want, as I say, to come alongside and encourage you. Can I start uh, then by giving you some scripture? Yes? Yeah, good. You're going to be a good group. Man, that's good. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I think is the basis for my topic today. It goes something like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Because you are shielded by God's power until the day of your salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. Live your lives in reverent fear because you have been redeemed from your former way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable by the living and enduring word of God. So you are a chosen people. You don't feel that way, do you? (laughs) You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Now, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world 
to abstain from anything that wars against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, and they probably will, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day He visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, see, that's where you need some help. See, all across the world, when uh, the word of the Lord is read uh, in any nation... People respond by saying, thanks be to God. So, one more time, this is the word of the Lord. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. We're going to get a bus, get on the road, and go make some money. Going from church to church. No, seriously, we're going to sit here for a few minutes. Thomas Merton said that most people do not become great saints for the same reason they don't become great poets. Wait for it. They never get around to being the kind of person called for by the times in which they live. They're called by the pursuit of someone or something else. The next big thing in life. But they never get around to being the kind of person called for by their times. It raises the question, what time is it? What kind of people are called for by these times? And what are these people doing? And who's making these people? Where are we going to find them? Well, the times, according to what you've been studying, are exile. And the kind of people that are called for by these times is the remnant. Pause. It is not the Reformation, and it is not the Revolution. What's called for in exile is a remnant. What marks the people of God in exile is not their arguments, it's their lives. It's their body of work. So everybody can play. Because you don't have to be really good with words in order to be a powerful influence in a remnant. You just have to walk the talk. And everyone can do that. What marks us is not our militants. It's our humility. Submission is the new power in exile. The threat in exile is not that we will be uh, persecuted. The threat is that we will be marginalized, we'll be forgotten. The problem is not that Christianity is going to be made illegal. The problem is that Christians risk making Christianity largely irrelevant by these times. If we continue to live in ways that are like everyone else, then there really is no social or cultural value in belonging to the people of God. We have to be different people. 
So it starts with a commitment to live lives with points of separation. The kind of person that is called for is a remnant. In his work uh, on Old Testament theology, Donald Gowan, he's an Old Testament theologian, so I know most of you read him. (laughs) Or not. He studies exile uh, in the Old Testament, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you know that most of the Old Testament was either written by people or to people that were in exile. So he asked himself, what were the defining characteristics of a nation before they went into exile? And if you line up his characteristics, it sounds an awful lot about what's happening in our culture today. The first one, he said, is the rise of a prophetic voice. Just before God sends someone into exile, he will surround them with people who say things that are prophetic. I don't mean that they're prophesying the future. I mean that they're calling God's people back to the core of their living. They're calling for a faithful presence. H.G. Wells says, in a time of crisis, the first job of the intellect is to restate the obvious. And so what the prophet is doing is they're saying things that are obvious in Scripture, but they seem really prophetic in today's society. The second uh, sign, says Gowan, is the fall of a dominant narrative. In the Old Testament, the dominant narrative was the temple. The temple was not your church. The temple was your life. It's where the markets were or around them. It's where all the social discourse was. It's where all the smart people hung out. It's where you met people. It's where you worshipped. It was your life. And so when the temple fell, what Israel lost was its way of life. They didn't just lose a church. They lost a culture. In our day and age, we're seeing the fall of a once traditional Christian status, where where Christianity used to be in the center, kind of, of the religious life in America, we're seeing Christianity moved more and more to the margins. I gotta tell you, I couldn't be happier. Really? You look like you're not happy. Because if you're familiar With history at all, you know that God has always led the world from the margins. Richard Rohr says, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he is able to do this from a minority position. So he says, mark it down. Jesus always rides into the imperial city. On the donkey. If you really think the objective here is to take America with the Christian faith by storm, by writing new laws and getting your guy elected, if you still believe that, you have to explain how the most powerful revolutionary life that ever existed slipped into this world in a manger. Why would you do that? And went out 
on an instrument of ridicule. And yet, from that minority position, Jesus is the most powerful name in all the world. Yeah, now's a good time to, I mean, nod, shake your hand, throw a hymn book, shout something. Now's a good time to say amen or something. Uh, Thanks, all three of you. Thank you for that. (laughs) So the more we get moved to the margins, actually, the more powerful we become as a non-conforming entity. The third mark, the third mark of a remnant is that it is not only the rise of a prophetic voice and the fall of a dominant narrative, it is, it is also the beginning of something entirely new. See, we miss this. We keep thinking that remnant means only left over. But, and, and it kind of does. It's something left over from the past. But let me add to that. And Steve said the same thing a few weeks ago. It's something of value. It isn't just something left over. And it's something that has been saved in order to build it into the future. So if you're part of the remnant, you are the future. You don't look happy. In our house, there's two stations on all the time. One's ESPN, one's HGTV. (laughs) Which I call house porn. (laughs) Because it has the same effect on a woman's appreciation of her house. (laughs) As porn has on the effect of a man's appreciation of his love life. Oh, boy. We just went to Madeline. I mean, you see it, and y'all go, what's wrong with my house? (laughs) I don't like my deck. I want a pergola. Is that what that's called? I don't even know what that stuff is. So I'll sit down with my wife every now and then, and, and uh, we will watch house porn. And there's one show that we both like, Fixer Upper. You, you've seen the show. You're nodding with some familiarity. Chip and... Holy, holy cow. thought I just was naming the 12 disciples. <laughs> oh my goodness. So what they do is they go into old houses that are run down and then they move into them and they start stripping everything out of the center because by the time Joanne is all done, it's going to be a brand new looking house. Now she just happens to be married to a guy that that uh, can do anything in the house, which, by the way, is quite sickening to the rest of us. I'm like, don't tell me. He's really smart and he can throw a football too, right? Perfect. So what they do is when she sees what the house is going to be and they strip everything out of it, she has found several warehouses around that area uh, where she stores old junk. 
So, for instance, she'll go into an old church that's going to close down and find these old wooden doors in a church, and she'll think, I don't know where I'm going to use this, but someday this is going to be perfect. So she'll store it in the warehouse. Well, she has several of these warehouses. I don't know this. My wife just told me, and I believe her. So when they're in a house, and they're getting ready to put the finishing touches on it, Joanna will look at that archway and think to herself, what does this need? What will be the signature piece? What can I put in here that'll really accent all the stuff that we're going to do? Bingo! Those old church doors. Yeah! I'll go get those old doors and I'll have Apostle Chip refit those things so they sit beautifully in the archway, and we'll st- I'll have chips stain them. <laughs> and sure enough, she goes and gets the doors, and she strips them down to the core, and then she fixes them up, and then he refits them so they fit inside the archway. What I'm telling you is, Joanna is a dealer in remnants. She goes to the past and she finds things that seem left over, like they don't have value anymore. But she stores them and she waits for the perfect time in the future when she's going to build the Taj Mahal. Wait, that's a different religion. And hang those doors in the archway. What I'm telling you is you are that remnant. (laughs) you're not something just left over from the past with all of your outdated and obsolete beliefs. No, no, read the scripture. What God is calling from you right now is to practice things on a daily basis that will be the way the entire world goes When the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, you are doing today what everybody will think is common sense. Why wouldn't you live that way? Only you're ahead of the schedule, not behind it. How you feel now? Huh? Are we getting better? So it's essential right now in this day and age that we produce different lives. How many of you in the room are under 30 years old? Let me see your hands. Oh, this is beautiful. Thank you. I have a staff of 10. Five of them are under 30. One under 30, he's 25, was preaching today, all three services. I deeply believe in empowering the younger generation. But can I tell you, if you're under 30, why the older generation needs you to stay in the game? Listen to me. It's a time in your life when you're wondering, some of you, if you should check out. And I'll tell you why. Because the more the old man, that's... There's got to be a nicer way to say this. Your dad. The more he feels marginalized from the center, the more he fights to get his power back. He wants to get his guy elected. He wants his laws passed. He wants Christianity to be the established religion in America. But nobody under 30 really wanted that. And so the more that your dad feels like he's an exile from this country, you feel like you're an exile from your church. 
You never wanted what he's fighting for. Let me tell you why we need you to stay in the life of the body. Because now more than ever, we need the church of Jesus Christ to listen well to people and to the culture. We need the body of Christ to go into society with their guards down, listening, not with rhetoric. Number two, we need help, us 50-somethings, disentangling what is essential from what is only cultural. Because the older you get, the more you start entangling the essential parts of the gospel with the way you express the gospel. But I I had to remind my church last week, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the yeast. It is not the bread pan. It loses itself in any culture. And as it loses itself in that culture, it emits life. And it causes that culture, any culture, to rise. To become what it is capable of becoming. And it leaves to other forces the right to determine the shape. This is why Christianity can thrive in any culture. It doesn't need cultural regulations. It is life. It emits life. And people rise. Mm. Amen. That's good. (laughs) So we need you to help us disentangle what is yeast from what is bread pan. The 50-somethings my age are going to get this wrong, and we're not going to like it, but you need to stay in the argument. Don't walk away. Third, you need to model for us getting back to the Word of God. Let me say that in slow motion. Most churches I go in are sermon smart and Bible dumb. They know way more about what the preacher said than about what the Apostle Paul said, if they know Paul at all. In most churches I go into, and I think the younger churches are really uh, culpable of this, they love worship more than Scripture. And so while we can lose ourselves in the mood of the moment, in what is a worship experience, We are not always grounded in the Word of God. So the most valuable thing you heard this morning was when Kyle cited Corinthians. Because that's who you are. That's your story. That's your narrative. And the more deeply we are entrenched in the biblical narrative, we know who we are. See, when we don't know who we are, we act like somebody else. So we have to remember we are people formed by the narrative of Scripture. And finally, and this leads into my sermon, how am I doing? (laughs) We need people that are different. People that are different. In conspicuous ways. Say it differently. I'm not talking about people who wipe their mouths and say please and thank you. I'm talking about people who don't want to be rich.
75% of all freshmen checking into universities, Christian or non today, 75% of them say in the top three goals for them is to make a lot of money. Who taught them that? It sure isn't in the biblical narrative. We need people that are willing to lay down their lives in great risk for something that is bigger than their lives. And so we have to be different. The church is changing. The church of the future will be less evangelical. It will be less white. It will be less traditional. And it will be smaller. But the core of that church remains the same. And you're in it. Please stay. Are we good? What then is integrity? The word integrity literally means one. It means whole, complete. An integer in math is a whole number. And so when something has integrity, it means that all of its parts come together in perfect symmetry and they function as one. Think of it like this. Sometimes our lives is like a long hallway and off on both sides are doors and inside of those doors are big rooms and each one of those rooms represents a part of your life. So right now, you're in a room called church. <laughs> but in maybe an hour or two, you're going to leave and go home and get online and enter a room called Facebook. Then you'll go out to eat in one of them big fancy barbecue restaurants with 20 televisions and 20 footballs. That's a room called heaven. <laughs> and there's going to be loud noise and people are cheering and then you're going to go to work tomorrow and that same boss who takes all the credit is going to power up Again, that's another room. Well, anyway, you got all these rooms in your life, and in each room comes a different set of expectations, a different set of roles, a different set of, well, shall we say, urges. And integrity is when you are the same person at the core in all of those rooms. So what is that person really? I read through Leviticus uh, not long ago. That's where you go, isn't it, when you want to be inspired? And in Leviticus 19, I was reading stuff I thought came straight from um, the Sermon on the Mount. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Don't steal, don't lie, don't deceive one another, don't swear falsely. I am the Lord. Don't defraud your neighbor. Don't hold back wages. Don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. I am the Lord. Don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor. Don't show favoritism to the rich. Don't spread slander. I am the Lord. When an alien is living among you, you must not mistreat him. You must treat him as if he's a native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens, and I am the Lord. And I started to summarize what Moses was saying in Leviticus with some of the things that Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and it seemed like three qualities overlapping in the center in what's called a nexus form what I think is the nub of a life of integrity. Let me rip through these quickly and then make some observations. The first 
is truthfulness. Truthfulness does not mean accuracy, and it does not in the Scripture mean honesty. So when a person goes online and rants their emotions, they are not, according to Scripture, being truthful. They're just being self-expressive. Truthfulness in the Bible means solidity. It means verity. It means alignment with reality. It means that what we say is completely consistent with the way things really are, not as we wish they were or as we hope somebody else thinks they will be. This is why if a person does not have truth at the core, they can't go anywhere from there because they'll lie to themselves. We live in a day of spin. The news is no longer the news. It's somebody's opinions salted with facts. And it has led society to believe that there are no facts, only spin. We live in a day of scandal where coaches, pastors, leaders, teachers, neighbors have been found with skeletons in their closet and it leads people to believe that everybody has a skeleton in their closet, that nothing is as it seems. When the Bible calls for truth, it calls for genuineness and transparency and authenticity at the core. Goodness. We confuse goodness with morality. That's not what it is in Scripture. In the Bible, only two things are called good. One is God. (laughs) Okay. And the other, wait for it, is creation. So when God created the world on the sixth day, He stepped back and said, It is good. That's kind of how He said it. That's good. And He didn't mean that ain't bad. What he meant was, everything is functioning as I designed it. Everything is fitting where it belongs in the scheme of things. And everything is giving to other things around it what it was designed to give them. So goodness in the Bible is not so much a moral term as it is a functional term. When people function like God designed them inside of a scheme where He has put them, and when their lives emit value to people around them, then you can say, that's a good life. A good teacher is not someone whose students have passed all the tests. A good teacher is someone who has empowered students to be self-learners. A good coach isn't one who doesn't lose. It's one who elevates his players so when they're on the floor, there's a symmetry and a balance and a beauty in their movement. A good artist is not one that doesn't make mistakes. It's one whose work inspires in the viewer what they were hoping to inspire. They touch a nerve. Do you see it? So in today's age, when everyone enters contracts and then breaks them again because it's no longer in their own interest, can you imagine the power of a good person 
released into the community who truthfully looks after the interests of others. Can you imagine a good businessman who says, this is going to cost us profit, but your family's more important to me? Hmm. Third, courage. If a person is truthful, they will be genuine. If a person is good, they will be unselfish. But if they are weak, they will be neither truthful nor good for long. Courage is not confidence. Confidence means, I got this. Courage means, I am called into this. Confidence says, I can do this. I am not afraid. Courage says, I am terrified, but I have no choice. I must show up with valor and pour my life into it. Some years ago, I was caught in a struggle in our church. Things were not going well. And in reading a book, I, I heard what was called the surgeon's credo posted on a wall in an oncologist's office. He walked past it every day on his way to surgery. Being a good physician, he was committed to helping the life and vitality of his patients. But being an oncologist, he was always aware of the limitations. And the surgeon's credo went something like this. My orders are to fight. And if I bleed or fail, or win with might, what matters it? God only doth prevail. The servant craveth not except to serve with might. I was not called to win or lose. My orders are to fight. Courage is not self-confidence. It is God confidence. Now look at the chart one more time, and I'll point out a few things, and then we'll be done. Your stomachs are growling, I can tell it. First, please note on the chart that integrity is the combination of all three of those things. It is not just any one of them. It is the place where all three intersect. Second, please notice that Probably most of us in the room are naturally good at one <laughs> and maybe not so good at another. So if you were born with a love for justice, goodness might be a bugaboo. If you say, well, I just told them the truth, but you cut them and hurt them when you did it, then you lacked integrity while you told them the truth the third thing, then, is that integrity is never either or. It's never, I have integrity or I don't have integrity. And it's never really, how much integrity do I have? The question is, how much integrity do the people around you think you have? Mm -mm. So now we have to ask our spouses, our friends, yes, even our enemies. Five times before he died, 
Jesus' innocence was vindicated by five different people, and all five of them were his enemies. Finally, we need integrity. When I hire people at College Church, this is what I look for. They got to be able to do the job. But this is the character I look for. If you're an aging senior executive and you're looking for a successor, some young guy to take your office, this is what you're looking for. If you're a business person and you just want to hire help at the front desk, this is probably what you're looking for. Can you imagine a society that was full of Christians who lived with integrity? Here's my last story. Some years ago, an old hermit, old man, lived in the mountains all by himself. Back in the day, they didn't have radio broadcasts, at least not recorded. They had radio concerts. And so every Saturday night, they'd bring a small orchestra into the studio, and they would do a concert. And uh, this old man with a fiddle that was bad out of tune was trying to was trying to tune it, he decided to write a letter to the radio station. The letter went something like this. Dear sir, I'm an old man that lives in the mountains with a fiddle that's badly out of tune. Every Saturday night I listen to your concert. I'd love to play with you, but not with this old thing. Some Saturday before you start, would you do me the favor of having one of your players please play for 30 to 45 seconds a good, long, solid A. So I can tune my fiddle. Sure enough, a couple weeks later, when he turned on the radio for his concert, he heard a voice say, somewhere in the mountains there's an old man with a fiddle that's badly out of tune. Old man, go get your fiddle. (laughs) Here's your A. And for the next 30 to 45 seconds, the old man tuned his fiddle. I believe we live in a day where people are out of tune. More than anything, they need to hear a good, solid A. Church, are you in? Yeah, let me say that. Are you in? Come on, man. Are you in? Are you in? Tell me that you're in. Are you people of integrity? Yes, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God so that you would declare the praises of Him who brought you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but today you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but today you have received mercy. So I urge you as aliens and strangers to live your lives in reverent fear. Abstain from anything that wars against the soul and live such good lives so that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us this is the word of the lord